Ladies and gentlemen, bottles and ghouls, creatures of the night. This is the Full Moon Channel. This is the Face for Horror podcast. My name is Chris, but you can call me Moon if you like. So, before we begin the um, show tonight, there is a little clip I have to play, and this is it. The following program contains coarse language, a lot like real life. Your discretion is advised. Alright, so I was advised that I needed to play a warning. Uh, I couldn't find one that was about descriptions of murder, mayhem, and general horror, but there may be occasional swearing. Um, thank you so much, Jen, for helping me out with that, because I would have sat here and recorded this whole thing and been muted the whole time. Um, much love, dear, much love. So tonight we're going to be discussing 1978's Halloween. Um, for anyone who's followed me for very long on YouTube, you'll know that I was a latecomer to the Halloween franchise and a latecomer to the first two Halloween movies. Um, there's a story behind that. The short version of it is, is when I was first getting into horror, everybody kept telling me that Halloween was great. I hadn't seen the first two yet. Um... But I had seen the first two Fridays, the first Nightmare, um, and like growing up in the 70s, and of course, Jaws and, and all the stuff like that um, <clears throat> coming into it and all the stuff that they had been showing on TV at that time. Um, so when I went to, went to watch the first Halloween movies, I went to the video store to rent them. They didn't have the first two. All they had was part three. It had just come out at the time. And I was a victim of overhyping. I was told that Halloween was so much better. I didn't know that the first two were Michael Myers and the third one was not. So I watched it and I absolutely hated it at the time. Um, and actually still hate the third one with a passion. Um, but it, it really tainted my opinion of the franchise. So I didn't see parts one and two until right before part four came out because I was going with some friends to see that one in the theater and figured and by that time I did know Michael Myers and all that but it did taint me and I didn't go back and watch them until till then so um, I'm not the hugest fan of this franchise and I'm not the hugest fan of this first movie um, it's it's really good it is a good solid movie it's a good slasher it's well directed it's well acted all those things I just don't think that it's God tier like everybody else seems to um, I saw Friday the 13th the first one when I was very young um, and so that's my entry one of my earliest entries into the slasher subgenre and the horror genre in general um, and while a lot of people say that that how that Friday the 13th is a ripoff of the first Halloween, the first Halloween is a ripoff of Black Christmas. So if you hold that against Friday the 13th, but not against Halloween, then there's then you just don't know your horror, honestly. Um, but so I was kind of late to um, Halloween and. It just, it just really isn't, for me, 
that super high level that it is for everybody else. It, it's an A-plus movie. It's a top-tier movie. Just for me, it, um, it just doesn't tick the boxes like it does for most people. Um, <clears throat> in fact, actually, I rewatched it today. Um, and I sat down to rewatch it. And I kept finding myself doing other things, um, piddling around with, I was setting up the stream deck and I was, um, you know, went and made icons for all the buttons so I know what my sounds are, what my sound cues are, <coughs> excuse me, and things like that. And, and then when I did start playing it, I found myself, um, doing stuff um, other things around the room and and whatever but I have seen it enough times over the years um, and that I can pretty well go through it I, I don't have a whole lot of trivia on this one that stands out to me uh, I don't have a whole lot of huge insights on this one um, but there's so many people who've done so many videos on this one that you know, you can go go check out a hundred different podcasts and a hundred different videos um, <clears throat> that cover all of that stuff. So, um, one thing that I do want to talk about is the opening sequence. Um, the opening sequence in this one is still to this day mind-blowing uh, on a level. Um it is um, the, the one shot the um, the way that they do um, steady cam on it which was a brand new thing at the time uh, <clears throat> and it was they only had a very short filming schedule because of the budget uh, and they ended up wasting an entire day trying to do it in actually one shot but the um, but Carpenter and the cinematographer worked it out, and there are some really clever edits. If you know what the edits are and where the edits are, you can see them. Um, but there's only like three or four, and it's this really long sweeping shot. <clears> this <throat> starts with it's all uh, point of view. It starts by looking in the window. It goes around behind the the house into the kitchen. Um, and then you see the camera puts on a mask and this is actually still kind of a creepy thing for me this is kind of one of those things that that kind of sets me a little bit on edge um, and that's because you've got this huge screen that you're looking at but yet your vision is so compacted down to just the eye holes for the mask it it really does feel like you're trapped inside something, like you're missing um, elements off to the sides or even dead center in the middle that you can't see. Um, <clears throat> so it, it's fairly uh, claustrophobic once the mask goes on, which is a really interesting effect. Um, even for someone who's as jaded as I am, when it comes to horror and a lot of people who've seen horror are, for me, that's one of those things that just sort of, um, it, it's, it's unsettling, uh, in a way. Um, something as simple as that. The, the rest of it, the, 
I don't really get a whole lot of suspense from this one myself. Um, but this that sequence at the beginning of it is still makes an impact. And of course, the point of view uh, goes around and goes up the stairs, um, <clears throat> which is also really kind of a neat one when you do know some of the what's going on. And it's the fact that the scenes that you see in that are the only parts of that house that were um, cleaned up and and to look like they were um, not run down because the they set the house up for the shots for the rest of the movie except for that one hallway and that one staircase um, so they had to be real careful with it which is one of the reasons why they used the constricting shots with the with the mask over the camera it made it easier to hide those things um, but then of course the killer goes upstairs kills the girl goes back downstairs and you find out that it's six-year-old Michael Myers um, they ship him off to the Institute and we're introduced pretty much to um, Ten years later, whatever it is, and um, you've got Dr. Loomis. Um, Donald Pleasance in this one, I like Donald Pleasance. I've seen him in so many things. Uh, he was a great James Bond villain. Uh, one of my all-time favorite movies is The Great Escape, and he's wonderful in that. Um, in fact, honestly, of all the movies that I've seen him in, his role in The Great Escape is is so good. That is my favorite role that he ever did um, that I've seen um, I, I know he's done tons of movies and, and TV and things like that and that's one of those things that but that's my favorite that's just the way it goes um, <clears throat> so the nurse and the doctor go to um, and go to the um, Institute which all of a sudden I can't remember what the name of it is. Um, but they go there to, because they're transferring uh, Michael Myers on on Halloween Eve, because, um, you know, that's going to work out good. Um, <clears throat> reoccurring moment in the, in the franchise. Um, and it turns out that he's escaped. They've got, he's let everybody else out, and he's headed for Haddonfield. Um <clears throat> And Loomis gets out and goes in. Uh, I do have one small little tidbit, and of course everybody knows this one, that the character of Dr. Loomis, or Samuel Lewis, uh, Loomis, not Lewis, Loomis, um, is named after the Loomis character from Psycho. Um, in a weirdly related moment, um, the TV series Dark Shadows had a character named Willie Loomis, which was also a tribute to uh, the character from Psycho. Um, <clears throat> most people do know that fact too, but nobody really talks about that, and I just kind of throw it in with this one because it's a, that weird, interesting little tidbit. Um, so, Michael Myers attacks the nurse in the car. Um, and does this hand smash on the window, um, which is one of those things. Um, 
it illustrates his strength. It illustrates his determination. Um, and it shows you what he's capable of doing in a very subtle way, which I like that. That's, that's a, a thing that a lot of people don't... It, you know, a lot of people realize that, but they don't realize that consciously. It's, it's one of those things that, that sticks in your mind because those windows aren't exactly something you can break with your hand very easily. Um, so he drives off, he throws her out of the car and drives off. Um, the nurse is uh, Marilyn Chambers, um, and in a, um, she comes back for part two, um, and then she comes back um, again later on in the franchise, um, <clears throat> which I thought was nice for somebody who has a really tiny bit part to bring her back like that. Um, and her willing to come back like that was is something that I like about this franchise that they're that they're not f afraid to bring somebody back they're not afraid to do re reoccurring characters um, <clears throat> it's one major complaint that I have with like the Friday franchise because um, I really would have liked to have seen some of those final girls come back especially Jenny um, possibly Megan um, but he goes on, and we meet our teenagers. Um, kind of stalks around and, and um, <clears throat> runs into um, the Laurie Strode character when she drops the keys off. Uh, her father's a real estate agent, and she drops the keys in the mailbox for somebody to come by and look at the um, abandoned Myers house later on. Um, a lot of people have, have brought up that this movie sets set in motion those that 80s tropes of um, one of each character type um, for your cast uh, versus people who would probably be friends in real life. Um, that is true in, in some of the other movies, but I could see these three um, being friends in real life. Um, probably Annie is the linchpin because she kind of is a little bit Lori and a little bit Linda, so she's probably the the central friend. It's probably, you know, her group of friends. Um, not that Lori and Linda don't like each other and aren't friends, it's just they're probably each one more close to Annie than they are each other. Um, or at least that's, that's the way that I look at, at the three of them. Um, but of course you have Linda who is the cheerleader type, the bubbly, outgoing, promiscuous, and openly promiscuous. You have Annie who's the not quite so open with it, um, but still very much a modern 70s girl. And then you have Lori who dabbles a bit, but mostly is the straight-laced, button-down, traditional, or would become the traditional. Uh, you can't really complain about tropes because it, this movie started a lot of them, um, or at least set them in motion. 
some some intentionally, some unintentionally. Um, so we meet them. They're they're the babysitters club, effectively. Uh, we find out that Annie's father is the local sheriff, um, who is actually one of my favorite characters in this one. Um, as much as I love Donald Pleasance and as much as I like the Loomis character, I really kind of kind of gravitate towards Sheriff Brackett. Um, he's trying really hard to be a good person, be a good sheriff, and be a good father. Um, and, and you can see that he wants to protect the town. And for somebody who has all of this stuff dumped in his lap, he really does go along with Loomis. He really does you know, try, he really does put in an effort, and I, I think he's a solid character that's a lot of times overlooked. Um, so, Myers goes to the local hardware store, um, and steals a mask, um, a knife, and some rope. Um, one of those things that they've, that's been gone over over the years is the mask, the mask, the mask, the mask. Uh, it's very important to the to the franchise and to this movie. Uh, we all, of course, know that it's a William Shatner mask with the sideburns shaved off and the eyes opened up. Um, one of the things that, that amuses me, though, is the way that the story of how, it's, how it was acquired has changed over the years. Uh, if you go back and watch some of the really early interviews from the from the 90s-ish, early 90s especially, um, it, they kind of lead you to believe that that the masks may have been, um, how you say it politely, a five-finger discount. Uh, they, they, it may not have been paid for. Um, the story goes, in, in one interview with uh, Tommy Wallace, that they only had enough money for one mask, and but yet he come back with two for John Carpenter to choose from. Um, Deborah Hill said something along the same lines in a, in a very early interview. Um, that they sent Tommy Lee out with enough money to get one mask, uh, and he made the decision at the time, um, though they did discuss it. Um, Famously, the other mask that they chose to choose from was um, Emmett Kelly, the Sad Clown. Uh, for anybody who's my age, you'll probably remember the Sad Clown um, was a was a deal back then. Um, for anybody who's much younger than me, um, the mask that the Joker wore at the bank job during uh, the Dark Knight. Um, that Heath Ledger's Joker wore. That's as close as they could get to it without without copyright infringement. That's that's the mask that they had to choose from. So uh, they go on and they are doing their babysitting or getting ready to do their babysitting duties for the night. Um, you see a few stalking moments. You see the car drive by that Michael Myers stole, um, and of course one of the, um, Annie makes the joke about, you know, speed kills because he's doing about twice the speed limit on a residential area, and 
kind of stops and kind of freaks them out a little bit. They see him hiding behind the bushes. They see him in the backyard. Um, I, I know it's supposed to be building tension, but for me it really doesn't. It's just, you know, glimpses into how they respond to this kind of thing. Um, you know, Annie makes a joke. It kind of freaks Lori out. Um, uh, Linda's completely oblivious. Um, so, you know, it does roll with their characters. So, uh, we get on to that night to the babysitting. Um, and Lori and, and Annie are right across the street from each other. They're babysitting Lindsay and Tommy. Um, Annie uh, spills butter on her outfit or on her clothes while she's making uh, popcorn. Um, strips down to her underwear and takes her clothes out and puts them in the um, washing machine, which is um, in a detached garage. Um, I, I know quite a few people from the Midwest and most people up there don't have detached garages and don't have their laundry outside in them mostly because it gets so cold in the winter um, that's kind of a deep south and west coast kind of thing where the weather stays fairly warm but we won't hold that against them just like we don't hold the palm trees that you can see on the street shot um, when they're walking and talking, um, it was it was shot on a budget. It was shot in California. So, little things like that have come to light over the years. Little things like that stand out to people like me who aren't um, neck deep in 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 this in worshiping this franchise and in this entry specifically. Um, I find them amusing. I find that the culture differences and ideas and the fact that they assume everybody operates the same way they do, uh, I find it kind of funny. Um, I kind of laugh at it and it kind of takes me out of things a bit. Um, but Annie takes uh, Lindsay across the street to Lori and she um, goes to get in her car and go to pick up her boyfriend for their date for the evening back at the house and um, Michael Myers is hiding in the back seat of her car and kills her. Uh, takes her upstairs and puts her in in the bed and puts the tombstone that he stole earlier from his sister's grave um, who was the girl that he killed at the beginning um, puts that on display um, Lori sees that across the street, or, um, no, Lori doesn't see that, um, Tommy sees that. Sees carrying the body up around, and, um, gets really upset, and of course that kind of freaks Lori out, but doesn't really do anything about it, because, well, we wouldn't have a movie if she did right then. Um, then, uh, Linda and her boyfriend show up at the house, um, and go inside for their evening's date. Um, 
kind of a, a little scene in the van that doesn't hold up very well uh, in modern times. Um, if you know what it is, you know what it is, and if you don't, well, we're not going to discuss it here because it's um, because Lindsay's underage and it discusses her to a point. Um, so we're just going to glance over that. It doesn't hold up well. I don't really think that it's... It's definitely something nobody would put in today. And it is what it is because of the age of the movie. Um, and it was meant to be teenagers joking around. But you just... It's not something that you want to joke around about. Um, so... Annie and her boyfriend go upstairs and do their thing, or not Annie, Linda and her boyfriend go upstairs and do their thing, um, and Linda sends him downstairs to get her a beer, and we get one of those, uh, rather infamous scenes where, uh, Michael Myers comes out of the closet, picks him up one-handed, stabs him with a big kitchen knife, big chef's knife, and leaves him suspended a couple of inches off the floor on the knife. Um, yeah. It, it's one of those things where don't think about it too much because the reality of that doesn't work. Um, then he puts the sheet over, then Michael Myers puts the sheet over his head and goes upstairs to um, where Linda is. Linda's played by PJ Souls. Um, wonderful actress. I've seen her in several things and she's awesome um, still gorgeous to this day um, and we get the second boob flash uh, in it and the famous line about see anything you like um, and there have been uh, other movies who have made reference to this scene some of them have done good jobs with it some of them not so much uh, I did find myself laughing hysterically today at it um, because there's a movie uh, called Gutter Balls that makes a uh, reference to the scene and it's it's really funny what it does with it and I couldn't see Michael Myers with the sheet and the dude's glasses on and not think of the bowling bag killer so that, that one that, that one's kinda corrupted me on this movie um, so he strangles her with the phone cord, um, back when phones had cords, uh, and people had landlines, um, and then we get the stalking of Lori. The, she's all alone, uh, just got the kids, she goes to investigate why she hasn't heard from her friends across the street, um, and we get this cat and mouse um, final girl battle with the killer. Uh, there's it's shot in some ways kind of like an um, like an action movie, uh, like a chase scene for that. I don't. I personally don't really feel the tension in it. Um, it's too. Um, it's too broken up um, once the once the fight starts it starts it stops 
It starts, it stops. There's um, supposed to be tension building as it separates um, in between it. It's supposed to um, be suspenseful. But for me, it's just really not um, and never has been. Um, what it is, though, is well choreographed. What it is is, is well filmed. What it is is um, very well done from every angle, uh, especially the lighting, the cinematography. And I'm, I'm not someone who really notices or pays attention to that sort of thing very much. Um, but in those sequences, um, there's, a, there's a really good shot that's shot from upstairs as Lori is um, kind of collapsed um, in shock and laying on the couch and it's it, the way that it's the way that the lights framing so you have shadows all the way around the edge and in the center there's a block of light and she's in the middle of it um, and uh, Jen says Gutterballs probably does do the best homage to that scene that I've ever seen I 100% that is so much fun, and it just really cracked me up today thinking about the the bowling ball killer with the wig on. That was that was great. Um, and if there, there's several scenes in the chase sequence where you see, um, or one, one infamous one anyway, where um, where you see him kind of walking where the the mask kind of illuminates behind her um, and you see it kind of just kind of comes into frame it so well done um, from a from the beauty of film the beauty of a shot um, and when I was a when I was much younger and did first see this as a teenager yeah, that was that was kind of surprising. You expect a jump scare. You expect him to just come through the doorway, um, but you don't. It just kind of he walks into the light just slowly, and it just kind of comes up uh, and reveals him behind her. Um, he not so efficient when it comes to her. He was pretty quick and easy with the kills for everybody else, and. Um, He's not quite as clumsy as the ghost face, but he's um, doesn't seem to have very good footing. He doesn't seem to have very good um, aim with the knife or anything else. Uh, Lori definitely gets in some really good um, offense on him. She does some smart defense on him. Uh, stabs him in the neck with a, a knitting needle. Um, and then... It comes down to um, the final sequence of it, and Dr. Loomis comes in and shoots him six times, and he falls off the balcony. This is kind of a blue balls ending. He goes back, and he's gone. They did do the second one, and when I saw it, I saw one and two back to back. So for to me, for for me. It's almost one movie, um, one and two together. Um, thankfully, it, they did give us a part two, even though they didn't want to. Um, because leaving it like it was at the end of one, 
would really have bothered me. Um, it really would have annoyed me. Um, there's a lot of things been said over the years from different people. Carpenter says that the le that the less is more. That you don't know anything. It's a force of evil, and and all of that makes it scarier. And I need a little bit more backstory. Uh, I need a little bit more character development from in a way. I need something to kind of hold on to. Um, with it, and again, it's probably because I saw the first two Fridays and the first Nightmare on Elm Street, and they have a great deal of lore to them, um, and this doesn't. This is just kind of, um, you know, it's a known name of the person. It's not like it's just some random guy who showed up, um, but, I mean, it is to the killers, or to the... Um, people that, that he's stalking, the babysitters, none of them know who he is or what his backstory is. The audience is given knowledge, but they're not. Um, and it just, for me, it just kind of falls flat. Um, it is my favorite of the Halloween franchise, um, but as far as the big four go, it is... Um, it, it actually is my... Well, I was going to say it's my least favorite, but it does kind of, of the big four, one and two are set in stone, and three and four kind of fluctuate depending on my mood, um, depending on what I'm up for, and whether or not I watch Halloween one and two back to back, or just one. Um, if, you, if, you just, if I just watch the first one, it's, it's the, my least favorite. Um... Without part two to round it out, giving it a full story, giving it um, enough um, backstory, uh, enough development, it just kind of feels incomplete. It feels unfinished. Um, one thing about it, the I can't argue the direction and cinematography. I can't argue the acting. Uh, it's probably the best of all of that. Uh, on a technical aspect of the big four, the first installments, this is probably this is for sure, honestly for sure, the most technically well done. It just falls flat for me personally. Um, it it just kind of it it's good, but it's just not the. It, it's just not that God tier that everybody else puts it at. Um, and I kind of feel that way about most of Carpenter's movies. There are a few that are really great, but most of them, for me, all kind of come out overhyped. Um, and this one was the first one that I found that way, and, you know, uh, I, I know people, I have a good friend, Sean, who is huge on John Carpenter. It's his favorite director. Um, and I can respect that. I, I, I can. I just can't agree with that. Um, so that's kind of my thoughts on this one. Uh, I know it was kind of short, and I had some technical difficulties at the beginning. Uh, and my audio is probably clipping, judging by how far in the red that needle is. 
so if this has sounded horrible, I do apologize for that. I'm going to see if I can't figure out what the crap happened with OBS. But um, So thank you so much for joining me. I hope you have enjoyed this uh, episode tonight. Uh, thank you, Jen, for joining me in the comments. Um, and I hope that you will tune in uh, for the next podcast. Um, I have submitted my podcast at this point to uh, four different um, podcast providers, including iTunes. Uh, nothing is up on their sites yet, but uh, we're but I'm hopeful that it will get there. Um, can't see why it won't, but. Um, so again, thank you all so much for joining me. Uh, join me next week when I do, when I discuss the uh, third entry, um, and that being uh, Friday the 13th from 1980. Um, and as always, y'all be good, y'all be safe, and y'all have a good one.